Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital editor. It might be hard to pay attention to movies right now, but plenty of films out there offer insights into our current political climate. Raoul Peck's latest film, I Am Not Your Negro, is a deep dive into James Baldwin's final, unfinished book, which would have focused on Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, and Dr. Martin Luther King. Using Baldwin's television appearances, an impressive array of found footage, and images of present-day hypocrisy, Peck draws a biting connection between the author's time and our own. Eric Hines spoke with Peck at the New York Film Festival about his relationship to Baldwin and much more. Here's their conversation. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. This is Eric Hines. I'm Associate Curator of Film at the Museum of the Moving Image, as well as a columnist for Film Comment. And I'm here with uh, filmmaker Raoul Peck. Raoul Peck was born in Haiti, spent his formative years in the Republic of Congo, and was educated around the world. He's a prolific filmmaker of both narratives and documentaries, as well as an activist and academic. He's best known for his narrative biopic, Lumumba, from 2000. And we're going to be talking about his new film, I Am Not Your Negro, which premiered at the Toronto Film Festival in September, is screening right now at the New York Film Festival, and was picked up by Magnolia Pictures for release in February of 2017. Raul. Hi. <laughs> nice to meet you. We have to have nice just to meet met you. you. Too. There's a lot of things that I want to talk about over the next half hour or so. Um, the first thing, uh, which would be able to give our listeners a bit of a context, because some of them may have not seen the film by the time they, they hear this, is a bit of how, uh, it's again, it's sort of a boring standard question, but I think we can get some good things out of it, which is how this project came to you or how you came to the project. I know that it's something you mentioned last night that you've been working on one way or another for about 10 years. Well, most of my project always came from something out of my life, uh, something that happened to me or s to somebody around me. So I never had a project that came out of nowhere. So, and in fact, if I think of Baldwin, Baldwin entered my life when I was 15 mm -hmm. years old. And at the time, it was probably one of the few authors with whom I could feel at ease, mm. where I felt he was talking about me, mm -hmm. uh, where I didn't have to deconstruct anything or mm -hmm. be careful of anything. Mm -hmm. You know, there were not so many authors you know, when you were uh, as a black young boy. You know, I remember reading Faulkner mm. and trying to find myself in Faulkner because he was one of the few author talking about black people. Right. But of course, as you can imagine, uh, you might be surprised sometimes in turning one page and, and you know, and comes the word nigger and you say, oh, they are talking about me. Right. And uh, so it... it you're, you're uh, not the, at that point, you're not the subject of the object. Yeah. And, and then you have to then, you know, when you read a book, you just want to be immersed in the story. Mm -hmm. And as a young uh, black boy, or I guess as a young uh, uh, um, Latino boy also, although they had uh, a lot of authors. Uh, I, I used to read uh, the Latino authors, mm. the, you know, uh, Garcia Marquez and, yeah. and uh, Cubans, uh, writers like uh, Alejo Carpentier and all. Uh -huh. So those were also, uh, you know, authors you could read. But regarding yeah. America, the United States... Were you United reading States, in English or, or, or translation in French? Where, how did you come across? Uh, both. Oh. I, I, I learned English very, very early. Yeah. Uh, 
although I still have a, a thick accent, but uh, I learned to read English very early on and French. I grew up with right. uh, both language, and later on, I you know I learned uh, German mm -hmm. because I study in Germany, and mm -hmm. uh, and then Spanish, of course, because mm -hmm. you know we I grew up with a lot of French, Spanish-speaking French friends as well. So you had Baldwin, who you could you know, read and be at ease. You know that arriving to page uh, 36, that you, you're not going to be hit on the head by something uh, uh, disgraceful. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, and he became a companion. I always had, uh, as far as I can think, always have a book of Baldwin nearby, mm -hmm. not far enough, you know, I knew I could come back to him. And it's, it's uh, one of the few authors where you feel like, when you read it, you read about your daily life. Mm -hmm. You're not reading about some story in the past. Right. It's really about something that happened to you today, as he says. Mm -hmm. You know, I like the quote. It's a Baldwin quote where he said, "You know, when a nigger quotes the the gospel, he's not quoting. He's telling you what happened to him today." Mm -hmm. And and Baldwin is do the same for me. Right. Were you aware of him as a public figure during that time too? Were you aware of the things that he was saying? Publicly? No, not not at all. Not at all. I, I don't remember seeing him on TV. I don't remember. But all this, the, the the whole part of celebrity came much later when I was already in college and and doing research. So I, I would discover, you know, the you know, he was on the cover page of Time magazine. He was in every show, TV shows, he was, yeah. you know, I learned uh, his role in the civil rights movement. All this came much later. Okay. Uh, for me, before, he was just, you know, uh, 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 an important writer in mm -hmm. my life, mm -hmm. like all the others, but uh, special. Yeah. And yeah. Um, the celebrity part came much, much later. I, I want to talk about, I, I'm tempted to go into it because I want to know about this project developing, but at the same time, I want to pause for a second and ask you if you at that time there's now and then there's also then when you discovered him if you related to him at all as being somebody who experienced exile and experienced sort of various different selves in the world being somebody who grew up to the age of eight in one location and then moved to a different continent and then traveled from there for education yes. baldwin had a, had a somewhat synonymous uh I, I think that there was a, a, a major connection there too mm -hmm. because his words also reflect the minds of somebody who had the privilege of looking at himself at his country at his life from the outside mm -hmm. which is a very privileged position mm -hmm. and that helps you discover who you really are. Mm -hmm. uh, Baldwin always says he discovered America by being out of America. Mm -hmm. And and my life was always that, you know, I I have a very uh, distant uh, uh, look to France sometimes because I, I grew up in France as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I can look back to the US as well because I, I, I went to school here. I went, I was in the Brooklyn public school uh, when I was 12. And and then I could look back to the U.S. and have the distance mm -hmm. to see uh, to see this country through a different uh, set of eyes. Mm -hmm. So, and that was the connection. And I I, I saw myself in what he, he was writing, mm -hmm. you know. And it's a really uh, privileged position because when you are here, as he says, you know, when you are here, and you have to have all these antennas 
to protect yourself mm. and to make sure that you you not run under the bus mm-hmm. and this permanent pressure you know whether you you are aware of it by the way or not but it's there and when you are elsewhere suddenly you are not the center of attention mm. you are another person you are you have another identity and by the way as an american black or white when you are in france or when you are in turkey when you are you are an american first mm-hmm. they see you as an american they don't mm-hmm. see you as a white american or a black american first you are an american mm-hmm. with all your identity with all your history bad or or, or, or good and and that's it mm-hmm. that's the first thing they see and that you learn only because you 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 went there mm-hmm. you know so it's a big difference so uh whereas people who who never had the chance to go out you know you it's like you are uh, permanently in this big uh, boiling pot where you don't have a minute uh, to take a, a respiration and and see well wait a minute what's going on here mm-hmm. where am i mm-hmm. uh you know wh- why i am doing this you know and this is harder when you live strictly where where you born and then you never had the chance to go out right so i would imagine that i mean that of course affects you as an artist and and the films that you're making but i would imagine bolton may have been a touchstone throughout your early years as an artist though too because you looking at your early cinema like where you're coming from and your distinctive place and what you're making films about like there is i wouldn't say there's a distance but there's a necessary layering between who you are as a filmmaker and your subjects. I can't help but then extrapolate and say that you as an artist and your development as an artist as a younger artist till today is also influenced by that very same thing is that you're you know you're not somebody who's coming from a place of proclaiming your authenticity, proclaiming the fact that I am from this place so therefore I'm making this movie. There is a sense of interrogating yourself and the subject in in your work. Yes, of course, and I think this is also something that Baldwin gave me very early on is to question all the assumption mm-hmm. that you are bombarded with mm-hmm. from the day one of your of your birth and to question everything, to question who you are, to question how they call you, to question the place they gave you or whoever gave it, uh and to never satis- be satisfied of mm-hmm whatever strong opinion that is put in front of you and and this is a, a very healthy uh exercise that i do and i don't even think about it i i just do it as i always question whatever seems to be shiny and gold you know there is always a, a back side of it mm-hmm. and and this is something you learn as a you know it's like learning how to walk learning how to think you know it's mm. and you have those uh, criteria of uh, of judgment mm. and uh, regarding you know uh, this aspect of patriotism you know that's mm. a big question right now you know yeah. do you kneel or not while the national hymn uh, is being played that that's a question you know why why are you going behind a flag when you don't agree about what they are doing in the name of that flag right you know there is a, for me patriotism means something else it means also justice it means equality mm-hmm. it means obeying certain rules but those rules have to be for everybody right. not for a minority right and otherwise you just blindfold and you can you know follow anybody 
Right. You know, you have to remember that Hitler was elected by a majority of German right. people right. because they were going after a flag mm -hmm. for uh, something that they, if they have thought twice, they would not have followed. Mm -hmm. So that's our role as a citizen to question our leaders, mm -hmm. to question anything they ask us of us, uh, whether it's going to war, whether, you know, all those hundred thousand of uh, young American, black and white and Latinos and Chinese uh, and Japanese who died in the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And to hear a few decades later, the very architect of that war saying, I'm sorry. Right. This is hard to hear. Sure. This is hard to hear. Yeah. So those are, are perfect example that shows you, you have to question yeah. whatever they tell you, you know, like they, they start uh, uh, blowing the whistle and then you have to march mm -hmm. without, you know, asking, where am I going? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's, again, to come back to Baldwin, this is an uh, evident and important thing that I learned from him. You said, uh, I don't know if it was uh, a slip or intentional, but I love it either way. When you referred to the, you used to call it the national hymn, rather than the national anthem. But I think that's actually really appropriate, yes. is that it gets a, gets considered a hymn. And I yes. think there's a religi almost a religious zeal yes. with which it gets treated. Rather well, it, than it is. It, it's somebody, uh, sometimes it's used just to make you shut up. Mm -hmm. You know, said, mm -hmm. no, you, you can't question yeah, anything. Just shut up, stand up, and salute. Right. That's what it is, too. There's a, there's a line from Baldwin's writing uh, that is incredibly powerful, I think, that makes me wonder how much you relate to it as well, which is when he talks about uh, the, 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 there being a line between being a witness and an actor. And in some way, he feels consigned to the role of being a witness and, and mourns the fact that he's not more of an actor, but that he has to be, a, somebody has to tell the story and that's his job. Is that something that you relate to? Yes, uh, because it's, it's a strange position to be in. I, I came to cinema not because I wanted to tell stories. I came to cinema because I understood very early on that it's, it was an extraordinary instrument to be engaged, to, to, be, uh, to, to, to show the truth, whatever the truth is, to, to be critic of your society wherever you, you, you live. Mm -hmm. And film was always, for me, a political tool. Mm -hmm. But I also understood that you still have to make film and not a propaganda right. product. I, I was, uh, you know, in between this generation, the generation before me were, and who were politically involved. I remember at the time, my elders, they were making film where it was not so much important how the sounds is or the image. If the mm -hmm. image is shaky and out of focus, that, that was part, you know, a little bit... Uh, political cinema verite. Right. And, uh, and I, I came right after that generation mm -hmm. and I knew that you could not go to people with the same kind of aesthetic. Uh, you have to find a form where form and content are really precise and, 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 uh, and well-managed and, mm -hmm. and each those elements were important to the story you are telling. Mm -hmm. In particular, when you are in competition with the mainstream cinema, right. with their very beautiful image, with the beautiful music and, and uh, strict editing, and everything is done for you to drink Coca-Cola and eat popcorn, you know. 
and how can you make a film and uh, um, and interest people mm-hmm. for for another content? But when your image is dirty, when your sound is not clear, when you know you you that's a war you lose uh, immediately. Right. So I knew that uh, this was important, mm-hmm. and and I, I I think I benefited from that and. I always try to make sure that I make a film first mm-hmm. and then the film say something or mm-hmm. have a not a message but at least ask uh, questions that you have to confront. Well, you've succeeded on both levels significantly in this uh, latest film. So let's talk about that a little bit, which is, uh, so obviously it's a, it's a film about James Baldwin using James Baldwin's words. And I would imagine, getting back to what I had first t- mentioned, which is that it, it took about 10 years for you to sort of realize the film based on the origins. And I would imagine that part of that journey was, and journey seems like the right word, it's another word that Baldwin uses quite a bit in terms of the journey of... of, but, of go yeah. ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah. No, but because <laughs> you, you say that it's, a, it's not a film about James Baldwin. Right. You understand who James Baldwin is through the film. Through the film, yes. But the film, from the project for me... From it's not the, his bio, it's not, it's not a story about him. His voice. Sure. What about what he says? And sure. I wanted those voices to resonate today because they are words for today. Yep. And and that's the first time, I, I don't know any uh, example in film history where you, you, you basically start a film from the the head and the brain of, of mm. an author. Right. And the film is the author talking to you directly right. without any talking heads, without any mm-hmm. other person interpreting whatever he's saying. You are, for me, that's the first time I felt like I'm just a messenger. Mm-hmm. I'm just the, the, the technical guy who is, uh, you know, arranging the mic so that uh, Baldwin can talk. You know, that's right. uh, what I wanted to do. Except, I, I understand the humility with which you're saying that, and yet that's not a movie unless you make it one. So let's talk about how you made it yeah. a movie. <laughs> um, how there, there's an incredible challenge there of there are, there are scenes of, of Baldwin on American television and, and elsewhere. But other than that, everything we see is something that you've, you've chosen and arranged. How did you make those choices? Where did you begin in terms of thinking you were going to tell this from within Baldwin's voice and it was going to be an author talking to you? How do you make a movie out of that? that that's uh, really a, a difficult question to ask, but uh, let me try to 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 answer it. Uh, there are many different components in it. Mm-hmm. The first one was I knew that I had to make a film that would be the definite Baldwin, mm-hmm. that would have inside of it what Baldwin is in the core of his personality, mm-hmm. his writing, his humanism, his poetry, his humor. The film had to reflect that. Mm-hmm. And my job was to feel this man as profoundly as I could. And I think uh, I, I was able to do that because it's like I knew him for a whole life, mm-hmm. for my whole life. Mm-hmm. I enter, um, it was an interplay you know, f- uh, between him and myself, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very intimately. Mm-hmm. So I felt that I knew who he was. I knew who he is. And so those were first step to even consider uh, to make this film. But for a long time, the film that I had in my head 
I knew somehow practically that it was impossible. Uh-huh. And that's a, a very <laughs> weird way to start a project. Sure. Uh, but being a producer as well mm-hmm. and, and having made all those films, all the other films were, let's say, trial, were mm. experiment, were, and I just decided, okay, this is a new experiment. I have to use everything I know and I have to be totally free. Mm-hmm free of financial pressure, free of, you know, having to give a movie at a, at a date, free of, you know, having to finish it uh, on a certain date, etc. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I reunite all these conditions. So I did not have to respond to anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, the estate was really uh, great uh, with us. They allow us to take our time they never pressure me. They let me do the film uh, and find the film. Uh, and then I just decided I was free. I was free like one of the film I made, Lumumba, the documentary, where I knew I would use any material mm-hmm. I could get my hands on, mm-hmm. whether it's video, 35, 16, 8 millimeter, photos, um, you know, everything was on the table for me. Mm-hmm. And the, the big change was to start with the text. Mm. I knew that the texts were powerful. Mm-hmm. So the be, the first task was to create the text, to create like you would do a, an opera and you would write a libretto mm-hmm. for this opera before you put the music on it. Mm. So the text is the backbone of everything. Mm-hmm. So I put everything on, on a huge table and all those excerpt clips from underlined books that I had underlined all, all my life, those important parts of who Baldwin is. And I knew by example that he has written tremendous film critics because I knew I would need images as well. Mm-hmm. And it's by playing with all this, you, you find little by little the, the main stories mm-hmm. and the parallel stories and when those stories will cross Mm-hmm. And so it's it's the mind game somehow at the beginning, and it's it's extraordinary that you could do that with that kind of material, and yeah. you have access to all this material. It's not that you are referring to one book. Mm-hmm. You know, they gave me access to everything, including mm-hmm. private letters that would give us a different aspect. Mm-hmm. So uh, once you have all that, it's the images come, uh, you know, slowly step by step, and there are images that he's describing himself. Right. So you, you already have that. Mm-hmm. And then the rest is a trial and, and, and a retrial and, uh, uh, you know, again and again until months after months, months after months, you finally, the whole thing just click together, mm-hmm. you know. So there is, not, uh, there is no, uh, no recipe to that. It's really you have to do it and experience it and correct it mm-hmm. as you go. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the influence of the words to the image? What is the influence of the image to the words? Mm-hmm. And what happened? Because the beautiful thing is when you, image and words taking together create something different. Yeah. A third level. Yeah. You know, and when you can do that throughout the film, it's it's just extraordinary. Well, I think it is extraordinary. I think that there's 
when when I sort of my experience of watching the film went to that other level of realizing that I was in the hands of of an artist who was responding to another artist is that you know you use use the sort of term clicking together which makes it sound like maybe there's the right image for everything and that's not the way you handle it, I think, at all, is that there are moments where you make very distinctive, almost idiosyncratic choices to illustrate what's happening or to work as a counterpoint exactly. to what's happening, exactly. which, again, takes me exactly somewhere else. Exactly like you are accompanist uh, with a music score. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have to play the notes and or contraplay the notes. It's many levels at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's like a, also it has a, a sense of free jazz. You are improvising, but it's precise. It's not improvising out of nothing, mm-hmm. but it, it's it's playing with the material mm-hmm. and and create sense, create new meanings, and and also to leave open a space for the audience to bring himself into the movie, mm-hmm. into the story. Mm-hmm. Because I think the more you bring yourself or you let yourself go watching that movie, it, it's going to change many things, who you are. Mm. I think that's, that's the experience I wish everybody can do mm. watching this movie because it's so, uh, the words of Baldwin are so direct and without disguise and a human. And he tells you a very hard thing, but with love. Mm-hmm. That's important, and and he doesn't. Right. It's not an aggression. It's you know, it's he's forcing you to look. First of all, he looks you in the eyes, and he forces you to look yourself mm-hmm. in your own eyes. So there is no escape, and if you let go and go into that experience, it's it's. I think it's for me. This is cinema. This is what we should be able to get when you you make a film. I think you do your own version of looking us in the eyes too. And one of the ways that you do that is, and I think you can only do this if you truly understand Baldwin's text the way that you do, because it could theoretically be a disservice, but I don't think it is at all. But one of the ways that you look us in the eyes is present us with contemporary footage. And so we're hearing Baldwin speak from the late 60s or early 70s, and and yet what we're looking at is footage from the last six months, from the last year. I would imagine that's something that, because you've been working on this for a while, developed quite late. The idea of, oh no, this is this needs to be here. Yeah, uh, in in details, yes, but the idea of being today that I had from the, the from the beginning. Yeah, it was. Th- that's the thing. The, the words of Baldwin resonates from the beginning immediately as words of today. Mm-hmm. He was not talking about yesterday or uh, the past. Those words resonate right directly to what is happening today and as we by the way were editing the, the the last this last year it was like we were not making a, a, a film but we were making news that, that was a very strange mm-hmm. uh, uh, situation where I knew that w- we would leave the shooting uh, for the last uh, you know t- uh, until we knew exactly what we needed for image but I couldn't resist to send a crew to Ferguson yeah. because I knew there, there was an immediate link to that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know yet how I would include it in the film, right. but I knew that there was the relevance right, right there. Mm-hmm. You know? And then came those, all those videos of, of black men or black children being killed 
by the police and 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 we were in the middle of it that that was a very strange situation to you know to make a film on which you have been working more than five six seven years and then the more you're working on it the more urgent and the more current it becomes mm -hmm. you know and and uh and that's why you you get this feeling it's it's fresh it's now and at the same time you feel that the words are fundamental mm -hmm. they are there, you know, they are very. They go very deep in the root of what this country is, mm -hmm. and it's rare to get both in in, in a film. Absolutely, uh, but I also found it a bit tough to take a bit because it's stunning how appropriate the language still is. It's stunning how what he, Baldwin's talking about and referring to fifty years ago applies to today i mean it's 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 wonderful gift as a filmmaker to be able to make that connection yeah, and to make yeah. that those assertions but also incredibly difficult to accept that there hasn't dated in well any way. That, that's what uh, the the consequence of that is that when because that's funny the, the film start with dick cavett asking james baldwin uh, so mr baldwin have uh, you know how do you feel today are you more optimistic right. because a lot of things have happened you know, we have black uh, politician now. We have black in the uh, in in the movie industry. We have even black in commercial. Uh, you should be happy, you know, that things have moved on. Right. And that's the beginning of the film. Right. And and those questions was 50, 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. immediately you see you you have to ask yourself, how come Dick Cavett could have asked the same question exactly with the same words? And the response would have been almost exactly the yeah. same. Yeah. And right now you just compress the, the last sixty years. Yeah. And and that journey in your head is already, mm -hmm. you know, put you in at the disadvantage because you say, "Wow, uh, to think about it, yes, we have progress. Yes, a lot of things have changed. But did anything change fundamentally mm -hmm. in this country? You know." The killings, when you see uh, all these three men, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, we found pictures of them holding newspaper. In particular, Malcolm X, he had one newspaper. Six black men killed by the police. Mm. You have another one, a photo of Medgar Evers and police brutality. This was 60 years ago. And you have uh, Martin Luther King yeah. showing the same. Mm -hmm. So it's like at some point you, you lost the perspective, you know, are we talking about 60 years ago or is it now? Right. You know, and that's the, the sort of catapult between time, you know, back and forth that, that gives the film its, its uh, this strange uh, feeling. You know? Yeah. I can't wait for it to come out in theaters and to have uh, people talk about it and to sort of see it be part of, make its way into the culture the way I think it will. I, I know that you were asked about this in the, in the Q&A last night, but I wanted to sort of dig into it just a little bit because I was taken aback. I mean, I actually knew going in that Samuel L. Jackson was going to do the voiceover. I was still went half the film before realizing that that was him because I thought another voice was going to come That's in. That's very good. <laughs> you know, it is very good. And I think that it, it works on several different levels because it would have been, I think, the wrong choice to feel like you were listening to Samuel L. Jackson over yeah. the course of the film. But I also like that he's not doing Baldwin. 
I like that he's not doing an imitation of Baldwin, Baldwin. That, which I think in, so it goes back to the Lumumba documentary, which, by the way, sh- shouldn't be confused with the narrative film, but the Lumumba documentary, which uses these different modes and formats. There is a, a, a rhyme with this film in that sense because you've got Baldwin represented on several different levels, one of them being Samuel Jackson basically reading from his letters and some of his writing. N- not reading. That's the, that's the trick. Go ahead. It's not reading. Uh, from the get-go, I knew... I, I, and that's one of Tell the me, first yeah. thing I told uh, Samuel Jackson is that I didn't need a narrator. Uh-huh. If I have done a narrator, the distance would have been immediate. It's about, like you say, not imitating Baldwin. Mm-hmm. It's about feeling Baldwin. Mm-hmm. So I gave him the text and, and asked him to work on it as he would work for a role, mm-hmm. not f- with a dead text. It was about... How do you, as an actor, feel the character? And how are you the character? With your own voice, of course, with who you are. But how do you feel the pain of the character? How do you feel the anger of the character? How do you feel the humor of the character? And this is what he did so greatly. And by the way, when we were recording, sometimes I would say, okay, let's do it again because you were reading. Mm. I said, yeah, let's do it again. Because you feel it, you hear it. And an, an actor knows uh, uh, immediately, and especially a, a great actor as Samuel is, you, you just feel it. It's not good. Let's do it again. Yeah. So, And each time we had to make sure that the voice came from the inside and not uh, from the outside. It was never a head voice, as actors say sometimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, it, and this is what makes the difference. And then you forget that it's anybody, Samuel Jackson, or, you know, it's, it's just the voice. And the voice become, with the convention of cinema, the voice becomes Baldwin's. Right. You know, right. and there is no question. You don't even think about it. Yeah. You know, and I, and I have people, uh, and there is a, a very well-known uh, film uh, executive who came and said, how did you do that technically? Like to have Baldwin on screen and having him you know, where those texts already recorded, I said, "This is Samuel Jackson," you know, and they didn't realize that. Yeah. Uh, and and he did a, a very good job and being very modest face to that text. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes actors want to you know take the over uh, and you know and dominate the text. Mm-hmm. No, he he really accepted the text and submit to the text and and went inside of the text with with modesty and that's that's how you get this result you know well i think in some ways it's even more powerful than you know you see some films in recent years that have found a ways of being entirely archival entirely through the voice of of a subject which can be very powerful and useful um but in, in a way you've you've managed to make something in my mind even more powerful because you are present that is not Baldwin. That is actually an actor named Samuel Jackson doing his vo- getting inside of him, as you say. Um, there are people, the Ross brothers, Bill and Turner Ross, who are very good documentary filmmakers, are, are shooting some of the footage of the yeah. film. There are all of these people with very strong artistic impulses marshaled toward the same thing. And you're all present at the same time as you're all secondary to serving Baldwin. It's a very yeah. difficult thing to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we had the text. You know, when, so when you have a, such a text, yeah. you know, for, for any filmmaker, it's like a, a, a big trove of gold, diamond, and a precious metal. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's extraordinary. 
But the, the difficulty was to make the choices sure. and to stay coherent to a storyline and to tell a story, uh, even though you tell it with different layers. But you have to make sure that you don't you don't swallow all the cake. You you have to make sure that you you take exactly the piece you need to make it work, because that that's the difficulty. You know, sometimes you you want to quote you know half a page, mm-hmm. because you have half a page that are great words, great literature, great you know rhetoric, mm-hmm. and so it it's something that you you do you know edit after edit, you know, to when I say the that the film click, but it, it doesn't go like that quick, you know, it's like <laughs> yeah. edit and edit and edit and try and, and error and, and uh, until all the different level, uh, which is image, music, words, uh, rhythm of editing, and, you know, until the audio mix, because that's the audio mix tell a story as well. Mm-hmm. You know, when when do you stop the music? How does the music goes out to the next image? Because depending on how you do it, you continue an idea mm-hmm. onto the next image. Sure. And then you connect those two images together, which I uh, in fact, they never belong together. Sure. But suddenly in your head, you connect two ideas just by slowing down the music earlier or later. So all those things are part are playing in the same direction, you know, and, and you never stop until the film is really finished. At every level of the work, you are you're giving it sense, you're giving it, uh, you know, material element and, and different, uh, you know, aesthetic, etc. Yeah, I mean, you hear the words tar- trial and error, but I think that when it's applied to editing a film like this, that's actually kind of, it's a frustrating, but it can be a, a glorious thing because it's only through trial and error that you get to someplace you didn't anticipate going to. Yeah. And, and what you were just talking about in terms of audio and an unbelievable moment of the film is when we're watching the Rodney King footage and there's the audio of Love in the Afternoon coming yes. in. And it's often there's, there's there's a bridge of sound into the next scene, but yeah. this is a this is a moment where sound yeah. comes in it's, advance. Sometimes it comes in advance. Yeah. Sometimes it's come uh, after. And and you play with all this, you know. You play that. That's what keeps you also awake throughout the film, mm-hmm. because you you feel there is something new and there is uh, something surprising that will happen. Mm-hmm. You know that that's that's important uh, tool in this film as mm-hmm. well. And then when suddenly uh, through that music on Wooden King, and suddenly you are in a, in another world, you know, with, with the title uh, in the afternoon, love in the afternoon, right. and you are in a totally different world, which is what Baldwin does is to the just juxtaposition of those words that never touch each other, yeah. the brutality in the streets and the you know beautiful world of Hollywood, right. the magic. And where you can, you know, do a whole movie about a love story in a perfect, uh, you know, ideal world without foreigners, without blacks, without, you know, it's just us, darling. <laughs> and, and that the, yeah. the film plays a lot with this. Yeah. Well, the world that we want to be, believe that we're living in and the way, yeah. the, versus the world we're actually living in. Raul Peck, thank well, you thank so you. much. It was this a was great wonderful. conversation. It was thank indeed. You. Thank you so much. And now, a conversation about the craft of filmmaking and the art of getting films made from another festival, Sundance. I'll turn things over to Nicholas Rippold now. 
Hello and welcome to the Film Common Podcast. Uh, we're coming to you from the Sundance Film Festival in Park City. And for this podcast, we're very privileged to have two filmmakers who have benefited from uh, Kickstarter funding uh, in their work. And we are, of course, also at the Kickstarter house. Uh, what I'm going to do now is just let each of the filmmakers introduce themselves very quickly so you can identify their voices. Hi, I'm Laura Dunn, director of Look and See, A Portrait of Wendell Berry. Uh, Dustin Guy DeFay, uh, Person to Person is the name of my movie. I thought that a good way to start this is just to kind of dig into the movies a little, just because it makes it less abstract for the listeners. I, if I had to kind of draw them together in some way, I just felt that they both very much are about uh, rhythms. Person to Person very much gets into the rhythms of you know a number of different characters, an ensemble of characters. And Look and See is about agrarian rhythms and preserving agrarian life and how that's has been swept away uh, or is being swept away and it has this beautiful voiceover done by its subject that also gets you into to that rhythm but if we can just start with look and see could you tell us a bit about how you got the film uh, started well i had a feature here 10 years ago called the unforeseen and that title was drawn from a poem by wendell berry who's one of my favorite writers and um when i toured that film and i was really surprised at how few people knew about wendell berry and so I just wanted to draw more attention to his work. And it was actually Robert Redford, who was one of my executive producers on The Unforeseen, asked me, what do you want to do next? I said, I think we need to draw more attention to Wendell Berry. And Wendell Berry's been a big influence on him as well. And so he actually helped get the film off the ground. And I mean, I know Wendell Berry's work mostly, as I mentioned to you before, I know his work from his when it was re, you know, printed in Harper's, but obviously has a huge body of work with, with, with books. And it just, it just seems a wonderful moment to make a movie like that because it provides a real natural, organic, rhetorical you know, grounding for a lot of feelings that people have now. It gives a voice that's really eloquent for a lot of feelings people have about changing modern times. Do you remember what the first piece by Wendell Berry you ever read was? Hmm, that's a really good question. I think it was all of his nonfiction stuff. I mean, it probably would have been The Unsettling of America, which is um, where he writes specifically about the industrialization of agriculture. It's not the poetry or the fiction. I first was drawn to it as someone who was concerned about agriculture and land use. Yeah. I, I ask partly because it's sometimes something you read so early on, it'll just stick with you and it ends up framing how you look at things. And yeah. years later, that's what you return to when you're like, well, what do I really care about and want to make a movie about, you know? Yeah, um, I think it's true. And yeah. someone asked me about that recently. I said, well, I think if there was any text that most informed this film, it was The Unsettling of America. Yeah, I think yeah. Right. I mean, I, I know in the process of making a movie, it's, you know, it didn't happen overnight. I'm always curious, like, how is that for a filmmaker where you have an idea for something, uh, you know, and you kind of have to cast your reel very far out to bet that it's going to be something that's still going to feel fresh for you and everyone when it's actually made. You know, you really have to love it because it's really difficult. It's difficult to get it funded. You get it funded in pieces as you go. Um, I think sometimes people think we're going to just go get the money and then we're going to go make the film and um, it's going to turn out exactly like I want it to be. And of course, it's like, you know, you get a little bit of money, you shoot, you edit, you pitch, you raise a little bit more, you keep going back. And if you're following real life, you have no control over what happens. You have no control, and in my case, farmers. You have no control over the weather. You have no control over what someone's going to say or not say, or if Wendell's going to participate that day, or if he's going to be in a bad mood. You can't direct the actors, you know, or set your set your sets. And um, so it's a long, difficult, 
challenging, messy process. Yeah. I happen to like that about it. And I complicate it by having lots of children. So from the very, I had this idea seven years ago and in the course of the film, you know, had um, several children. So I think as a working mom, that further complicates things and makes it a long process. Yeah, I'm just curious, what happens when Wendell's in a bad mood? <laughs> You're extra sweet. <laughs> you smile a lot and um, you sort of imagine that you're his granddaughter sitting at the feet of a great king. <laughs> um, I think you you just try to be as gracious and, and patient as possible and, you know, not worry about it too much. Just persevere, keep asking questions and hope that the conversation will interest him enough that he'll forget that he's in a bad mood. Yeah. I mean, he has, it's just such a lovely uh, voiceover that he does reading from his writings and also audio from interviews that you did, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah we did, um, every time we did a shoot. So we shot five different times over the course of seasons. Mm -hmm. You know, you talk about the rhythms, yeah. the rhythms of agrarian yeah. life are in perfect contrast to the rhythms of our modern digital life. And so we wanted the seasons to illuminate the place and have the natural world really be a full-blown character. And so every time we came to film in Henry County, Kentucky, I spent time with Wendell and interviewed him. And he calls them jam sessions. He doesn't like that particularly, but it's a lot of just like this, kind of a conversation. Yeah. And, and Dustin, your, your film is so beautifully grounded in, in New York, and, and but, but in, in a certain image of New York, though. I, I, I mean, I wonder if you could talk a bit about, you know, what attracts you to the kind of New York we see on screen, which is analog New York, you, you can almost say. It's, what struck me about the movie is that the internet, when it appears, is a villain, <laughs> in a way. But could you talk a bit about, like, you know, what, what your kind of uh, feel for that New York is? I mean, I've, I lived there for nine years, and um, I'm, I'm definitely attracted to just street drama. I mean, that, that's why New York's so awesome, is just... Uh, I mean, you just walk around, you're looking at small movies everywhere, basically. A lot of my New York is also informed by Benny Cooper-Smith, who's in the movie. In many ways, he's, he is New York for me in some ways. And, he, and he, he represents a, he seems to feel like an old school New York character. And yet he's, he is modern and he's living today and he's doing his thing. So I, I'm informed by him a lot. And then just other friends who are also I guess still, yeah, a lot of people are just attracted to the street drama. Yeah. And he, he plays a record collector in the, in the movie. Did you, and the, the music in the movie, I love the sound, soundtrack. Did, did you guys choose it together? Or? Yeah, I mean, I worked very hard on the music, but it, I didn't have the budget to necessarily be as selective as we could have been led to with Benny. I mean, we did go through a lot of stuff, but I was never able to afford anything he was sending me. Yeah. He didn't know what songs I was picking until he saw the movie, oh, but he knew all of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what are those songs? Like, what is this, the track that plays over in the opening? What, I mean, what's that kind of significance for that song for you? Oh, yeah. That, I think the name of that band is Gospel Ensemble. The words are very representative of the movie. Like, you need, you know, um, a whole lot of love is what you need, basically, is what's going on. Oh, it's called A Whole Lot of Love. There a lot go. of love. There you go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And um, I was very happy when I found that song, and I found it late in the game, and I was worried I wasn't going to be able to afford it and got it. So when I found it, I was like, this is the perfect song to open the movie with. It's got the right words. It's got the right feeling. Here we go. And uh, yeah, but a whole lot of love is what you need. Yeah, it, and it's it's helped set the tone so so wonderfully. And, and even the types of shots you're choosing in, the, in that opening sequence also kind of put you in mind of an earlier New York. I'm not sure what lens you're using exactly, but there's one particular shot where you're looking down a street, you know, and, and parked cars. And I just felt like I was going to be watching across 110th Street or something like that, you know, like some, you know, set the 70s New York film. Yeah, I think I know the shot you mean. And yeah. if you look, there's also a car backing up, mm -hmm. but it's a one-way street. They're going the 
wrong way. It's, I like that. <laughs> There. Um, Authentic yeah. lawbreaking. Yeah, I never thought about the movie being that though. I, I was trying to actually avoid as much analog as I could, mm-hmm. even though I'm very attracted to analog. Uh, we shot sixteen, and also Benny's sort of an analog person in many ways. But I was also trying to uh, make it not too analog, you know, not not an analog movie, yeah. or, or not a nostalgia movie at all. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's it's not one where you're you're kind of. Uh, yeah, hiding in nostalgia. You know, it's there are real dramas that are going on. When was the first time you actually came to Sundance to see see movies? So yeah, because because I'm from Salt Lake City, I get. I mean, I get. I think I was 19, and I, I'm trying to think of what movies. You know, I, it's hard. Like I can't remember. Like I know Young Poisoner's Handbook. I don't. Was oh, that a movie? That. Yeah, I know. yeah. Uh-huh. Well, who was? I mean. Right? I don't know. Gone, let's right? try to reconstruct Young Poisoner's yeah. Handbook yeah. between yeah. the three yeah. let's, let's, Here we go. Let's do this for an hour. Let's do it. <laughs> who, who directed that? Who's who in that movie? No, yeah. I know. I, 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 and what else? I can't, you know. I yeah. know. I'm trying to think of the big movies that were really... That if, I mean, there was... I mean, Amateur by Hal Hartley was around. Sure. Yeah. So that would that have been 94? Or I don't know. 90, or 95, or, or maybe. Know. I think it's around yeah. there. So that, and that, I mean, Hal Hartley was huge for me when I was yeah. young. I mean... I mean, yeah. For me as well, you know, it's early 90s. It's, I mean, it's kind of interesting to, to think how many films came out of the early 90s that revisiting now, it's, it's, it's really interesting to see them. And even some of the films in the festival this year, I kind of feel have echoes from, from early generations as people revisit um, certain ideas. Each of you, so you, your first time you in Sundance was in 2012, right? Yeah, I had a short family nightmare. And then right. two years later, I think was person to person, the short film. Yeah, and and then actual funding, just uh, Kickstarter funding, was for the feature, right? Yeah, my first feature, Bad Fever, yeah. which yeah. was which premiered in two thousand eleven, South by Southwest. How hard was it to put that movie together? And that was very easy. I mean, because that movie really cost the price tag on that movie is, uh, I think, the price tag of my music budget on this movie. Okay. <laughs> um, it was just made with people I knew. I actually shot in Salt Lake City, where I'm from. We, I just went back there and shot it. And uh, and then the Kickstarter we did was for editing, because I was there was zero there was zero money at that point. Ah, I so, see. Yeah. And and some other post things I used the money. Yeah. Yeah. Which it's interesting segue for Laura because the particular funding, um, the use of the funding, the Kickstarter funding was for a very specific part of uh, Look and See. Yeah. So we funded our documentary as a not-for-profit project. So Austin Film Society, I live in Austin, Texas, was our fiscal sponsor. And so we funded the entire film with grants, started out with a grant from the Sundance Documentary Film Program. It's really a diversified set of sources because you get from philanthropic foundations, from the International Documentary Association, it's a lot of grant writing and a lot of soliciting donations. And um, Nick Offerman, one of our co-producers, did some fundraisers with people like Sam Elliott. And you know, this is a very um, broad kind of uh, fundraising strategy. But we were right at the end, and my co-director, Jeff Sewell, thought that the film needed a different opening. And I thought the film was done. And he said, we need a different opening. I'm painting this world that's different than the world we're in. Jeff thought we needed some prologue to the film to take you from, to show you the world you're in, to start there and then take you somewhere else. And so we were about to premiere the film. We were a couple months um, away from premiering it. And he said, I want to do this. But he was licensing a lot of footage. And I said, how are we going to fund this? And he said, well, let's do a Kickstarter. I mean, when you were conceptualizing the movie from the start, how did you envision it? Look and see is a com- just for our listeners. Look and see is a is a combination of voiceover with uh, licensed footage and uh, you know um, interviews with farmers in, in Kentucky, uh, as well as these lovely uh, mm-hmm. woodcut engravings. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, I just want to mention your, your, your last film, um, The Unforeseen, also made very interesting use of graphics. So uh, going into this, how do you conceptualize uh, a movie that's about a writer? I'm sure everyone asks this, uh, but uh, it is an interesting issue. <laughs> it is an interesting challenge because the words and the text are what the film is about. And yet the film itself is a visual medium. And this is further complicated by the fact that my subject, I call the film a portrait of Wendell Berry, but my subject, Wendell Berry, is fundamentally anti-screen. He does not like films. He has a very low regard for the medium. He thinks it deadens our imagination. So <laughs> contributes to the decline of literacy. He doesn't participate in films. He has no computer. He has, doesn't like cameras. So I think the world of documentary is all about, you know, um, taking opportunities from the constraints because it's a montage you use what you have and you put together something it's kind of a scrappy process and I thought well the constraint that he doesn't want to be on camera is, is quite interesting actually and so I made a portrait of this man and yet it's really about the way he sees the world rather than the way the world sees him and that there's information in that about who he is and what he cares about. And, and, and I think images of his place and the people around him are actually a much better reflection of who he is in essence than if I were to sort of front lit film him. Yeah, and, and you nicely weave in his, his actual, some of his comments about, about film. One thing he says is that, you know, when you're looking at an, through, through a camera, you have a frame. So that automatically limits you. From his perspective, it, it limits mm -hmm. you. I'm sure filmmakers you might agree, <laughs> disagree a little bit, but that's an interesting, interesting perspective to have because immediately you're conscious of everything you're seeing in the documentary is a portion of something else, and you're conscious of the decisions you've made in, in framing, you know, the, the, the farmers when, when you're talking to them. I mean, I, I like a lot of the uh, more um, casual interviews you have, where it's mm -hmm. kind of you've, it seems like you've sent a question around the room and people are kind of responding. Um, mm -hmm. those, those seem very very natural with the, with the younger farmers, especially. Oh, good. Yeah. I mean, I think that in Lee Daniel, our cinematographer, he and I both think about how do you unframe things. You know, I'm not so interested in someone watching a film thinking about the director or the editing or the filmmaking. Like, I really want to just create a transparent lens onto something you would otherwise not see. So I really think of it as creating a space and unframing the subject rather than kind of controlling it and, and, and making it be something I want it to be. Yeah, yeah, Dustin, you're nodding. Uh, you're, you're juggling a lot of elements uh, in your ensemble drama. Was it always going to be the number of characters it was, or did you kind of have to prune it back? Was it always conceived as a feature? Because you've done such amazing shorts. I, I was wondering if it's always conceived as a uh, as a feature portrait. Yeah, no, it was, yeah, it was it was it was a feature. Although, I mean, uh, some of those some of those characters I thought were were going to have their own movies. They were other features that I thought that were going to be uh, standalone things. But no, once I started, once I started developing the thing, uh, it it was always like that way. Although you know, I, I definitely thought they could be pictured sort of as short stories or, or short films on their own in some way. But I may, I do, I, do, I started when I started writing and making it actually and developing the thing. Everything's very intertwined, even though sometimes it might not even appear to be. And there's such a different, such a spectrum of people uh, that they they all became very dependent on each other. I, I just like how there are also these subtly different tones, you know, for each of the strands that you have. It's it's really nice. I mean, uh, the, you know, the, the Michael Sarah and um, Abby Jacobson one is is a mix of, of uh, you know, sad sack madcap <laughs> in a way, but with a bit of a darker, uh, you know, edge to it as well. Um, and and that mixes in very interestingly with like the Tavi Gibbonson one. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just so excited about trying to pull something like that off. In some ways, these characters shouldn't all be in the same movie. 
Um, <laughs> that's part of what that's why it's so New great. <laughs> and, and that's why it's yeah. also New York in a way. I mean, like it's, yeah. Yeah. That, and so I was very, that's what I was very excited about is putting characters together that, that wouldn't normally be in a movie together and also trying to, and also trying to not make them connect. Right. I mean, in any kind of physical way. Yeah. No, that's definitely very welcome. But you feel like you've, you've known people that inhabit some of these uh, sprands, strands in life? or? Um, I mean, they're all, you know, I mean, it's the same, you know, a lot of writers say, you know, they're all me, that kind of thing. So that's that's certainly the case. Um, but but Benny is obviously Benny. I mean, like, I mean, I wrote that for Benny. Um, and Wendy, I actually was thinking about Tavi when I was writing Wendy, but I didn't know her, and I was just hoping that was just a. I don't know how that happened. That she ends up in the movie, it's great. She's definitely my own feelings. I felt when I was a teenager to write her, and and just jumping back uh, to Laura, how many total? How many months total were you shooting? Um, um, we shot. It was over the course of three years. We shot five different shoots, and then each shoot was anywhere from like five to twelve days. So you just sort of shoot, 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 shoot all day long for you know, seven or eight days mostly and hope for good weather, you know, hope for snow or ice or, um, a tobacco harvest. <laughs> for example. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm curious how, how the movie uh, evolved for you being made over several years because, you know, there's a way it can be an elegy, but there can also be hope in it. So how did you feel about the movie as it's kind of spanned that time? The way I started was, and, and the way I return again and again, I mean, Wendell Berry's text is the film, really. Everything is inspired and driven by that. So, and he's written more than 50 books, nonfiction, fiction, poetry. So there's a lot of text to work with there. And the themes, you see the tension between elegy and hope, you know, be kind of, a kind of talking about what we're losing and the lost world, the culture of the agrarian culture and, and rural communities and farming communities and how they're dying and how there's something so tragic and all of that. But that's set up against his own personal need for hope. He's 82 years old. When you ask him, how do you find hope? He'll say, well, hope's a virtue. You've got to have it. And he's particularly interested in finding seeds of hope and nurturing those. And so the tension between hope and elegy is in his work and in his writing. I think in some ways, maybe it's in any good poetry, you know, it sort of breaks you down and makes you cry and then lifts you up and the art of it can kind of transcend the pain. I think that's in probably every poem I've ever read of Wendell's. So I think that I'm looking for those themes and I'm looking for stories in his real world that reflect that tension. And it's not hard to find because you have these young farmers. You mentioned the young farmers. I think particularly post-Trump election, not many people were interested, and you, know, you talk about funding, not many of the kind of gate, gatekeepers in the documentary film world were particularly interested in a loving portrait of white male tobacco farmers from the rural South. That wasn't exactly, you know, um, politically correct. Most portraits of the rural South tend to be about what's wrong with the rural South, you know, the racism, the oppression, all the caricatures of the rural South. And um, I'm from the rural South, so, you know, for me, I think there's a lot more complexity there. And I was trying to make a portrait that was quite loving of these people and looking at the complexity and not trying to just paint them as simple, ignorant people that need to be corrected in their wrong ways. And so it's been really interesting because post-election, I think there's a lot of people asking, what did we miss? Do we not see these people? There's a painful sense of disenfranchisement of being left out of a global economy. And maybe that's something we should consider and think about and not just write them off. So that's been kind of hopeful, actually, in a, in a sort of sad way. And you see these young farmers in the film 
they're in a section of the film called Nowhere. So Wendell's saying, you know, everyone says if you're smart enough, you'd go off and do something else. He said, everyone calls our place the little nowhere place. Nobody cares about, you know. But these young farmers that we portray, they're, you know, in their late 20s, and they're saying, you know what? All the odds are stacked against us, but we love farming. No matter how much money I can make, that's what I want to do. It's because I love it. There's a passion. There's an art in it. And so there's something very poignant in that. I mean, it's both the elegy of the odds are stacked against them, and as you watch them, you know that, and yet they still love it, and there's a passion for it, and so they're going to do it against all odds. And I think in a, in a sense that reflects the essence of Wendell Berry. Yeah. I, just have, I always have to ask what people are working on next, even though I know you hate answering that question probably, but Dustin, do you have something, a, a notion or something that you're working I, on next? Yeah, no, I, I have a couple ideas, uh, and I'm writing, hopefully, Starting on Saturday. Okay. <laughs> All right. And, and, and Laura, you're probably going to take a breather after this. <laughs> You'd think so. But, um, <laughs> well, I'm interested in a couple of things. One, um, Nick Offerman and I are talking about doing something about forestry. Um, he's a woodworker. And um, there's something there. Um, that's, and then the other thing I'm really interested in, because I have so many kids, is I keep thinking about, you know, the, I think documentarians think a lot about what's disregarded. Like, how do you show people things that no one is looking at? And... I'm really struck by how many people don't look at their children, by how many people sit at restaurants and look at their iPads while their kid looks at their iPad. And so it's a kind of different take on the disregarded, but it's something I'm interested in exploring. Yeah. The, the, the unseen after the unforeseen, yeah. Yeah, the unseen. There you yeah. go. All right. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, we're wrapping up the film comment podcast. Thank you both so much for, for thank coming. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs>